Hello. Please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Martin Short sends Clifford into inner space. Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fate to the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. But let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas, and that T-Rex ride is scary as shit, son. And I'm Thomas Mariani, recording live from inside Adam Thomas's body. Oh, God. Oh. Yeah, how are you not dead from alcohol poisoning? I've built up a tolerance. I have a real immunity to it. Good for you. Well, Adam and everyone else out there, welcome to the Devil Edge Devil Bill, where each week Adam and I discuss a good and a bad feature related to a certain topic uh, that would usually we try and tie into something uh, that is recent. And, you know, we have that here with uh, our topic for this week is Mr. Martin Short, uh, who is on Only Murders in the Building, which is a show that's in its second season right now. As of when we're releasing this episode, it's a show that I've really dug. You know, it stars him and Steve Martin, who has collaborated with him a lot of times. And Selena Gomez is also sort of the third part of that trinity on that show. It's a very entertaining show that works for both of their careers, I would say. Oh, yeah, 100%. You can tell they just want to hang out with each other and work with each other at this point. And it's it's a perfect showcase for both of them. Yes, yes. And Adam, Martin Short is a one we've wanted to do a topic on for a while. And maybe it's less both of us, more specifically, you've really wanted to do a Martin Short episode for quite a while. Yeah, I fucking love Martin Short. I've always loved Martin Short. You know, God, I don't even know how young he is. When I first saw him play, you know, Ed Grimley on Saturday Night Live and just uh, his three amigos. And just I was so fascinated by this little short guy wiry goofy with these crazy body movements and this sort of just manic kinetic energy at all times and everything he's in you know even when he does downplay it, there's still bursts of it throughout like even in both our features do it uh, he's just so funny to me he's one of those guys that i feel like either you love him or you hate him there's no real like in between with him and i've always always loved him from the earlier movies to the jiminy glick stuff to the martin short show he had uh, it's just i think he's absolutely hilarious yeah there was a point where we will often do like after show like shoot the shit sessions and i would say there was a solid point where i don't know seven out of ten times whenever we do one of those shoot the shit things it would eventually get to the point where you would quote like a jiminy glick thing verbatim <laughs> While we were talking, <laughs> yeah, it happened. And I mean, I get it because, like, Martin Short's also somebody who, like, has just been so omnipresent. Like, there was never a point where I was like, oh, there was a world without Martin Short. Martin Short was just always, like, in a movie or doing a voice or on some TV show I was watching at some point. Martin Short is one of those guys where he has, like, despite being, like, you know, coming around in, like, the 80s and stuff, he feels like one of those old school entertainer types. Mm-hmm. Like, he's not a comedian, he's not an actor, he's an entertainer. Yeah, he's a singer, he's a dancer, he's an impressionist, he's just everything. Yeah, all the way up to, like, now he's, like, in his early 70s, and one, he looks great. Oh, fantastic. You would never imagine it, but also, it's just full of, like, so much comedic wit and energy that so many young people would 
dream and kill to have. And he's always had it. Like, I I spent a lot of, like, sort of the lead up to this episode watching a lot of the stuff that, like, I wasn't as familiar with, like, SCTV clips or a lot of his old talk show appearances. Like, he's a guy who, it's a bummer that the talk show's kind of died because he's, like, the perfect talk show guest to come on. He'll razz the, the host, but he'll also have, oh. like, so many great, like, sort of stories about show business, stuff like that. He's just a wealth of, like, comedy that w- is perfect for a talk show guest. Oh, 100%. I mean, any t- you watch any of his Conan O'Brien appearances, and all he did was just give Conan O'Brien shit the entire time. <laughs> and it was always so funny. Like, that's the thing. It never comes across really malicious, either. It comes across where it's like, oh, that's so good that you like that. Like, one of those, you know, where it's like a backhanded insult. Uh, it, it's just, it's so, he's so fucking funny and smart and sharp. But then you'll watch, like, a stripped-down interview of him, like, uh, one of my favorite episodes of the show, Comedians of Car Getting Coffee, is with Martin Short, where Martin Short is just loves entertaining and loves comedy, and he's still kind of like a kid and gets geeked out by certain things. Like, you know, I'm going to do the quote because it's my favorite quote ever from Jiminy Glick, and it's also Martin Short's favorite thing he ever did. He said one of his highest points in life was when he got Mel Brooks to break and laugh mm-hmm. as Jiminy Glick. You know, during the interview with Jiminy Glick, I don't know. So what's your big beef with the Nazis? <laughs> and it just Mel Brooks lost his shit because the sheer preposterous of that question. And yet it's so fucking funny. And he's so funny and just relishes in being in the moment at all times. And and he really loves disappearing to characters so phenomenally. Uh-huh. Like you like watching a lot of those, like I I wasn't as familiar with like say Ed Grimley, but watching like the the one where he is like first introduced on SNL doing the whole like um Wheel of Fortune audition thing for Christopher Guest. And Christopher Guest just, like, leaves the room, and he's like, oh, what if I were to be on? Wouldn't it be so great? Wouldn't it be, don't you know? Oh, it'd be so great. Like, the the amount of energy that dude has in disappearing into a character is so great, but at the same time, he can be very genuine at certain points. Like, one of my favorite interviews is, there was an interview where he was promoting, I think it was, like, the third Madagascar movie he has a voice in, and he was on, like, Today, and he was talking with Kathy Lee Gifford, and she was talking at one point about, like, oh, you know, you and your wife have had such a great relationship, and it's been such a beautiful thing, and he goes along with it very perfectly, she's like, yeah, um, we've been married for so long, and, you know, um, she still loves me, and all this other stuff, and this was a couple years after she died from ovarian cancer, but he didn't want to embarrass her, Right. Kathy Lee, and he was like very professional about it, very like honest about it, and she was like mortified, but like, oh my god, I'm so sorry about it. But he was a professional, and that's the thing is like that dude is a consummate professional, even though he's making like some of the most like cutting jabs possible at people and doing like great impressions. Like there's a great early like his first appearance on Johnny Carson I watched, where he does a Betty Davis impression next to Betty Davis, and you can tell she is not enthused. But he just, like, goes along with, like, okay, she wasn't a big fan of that, but we're going to keep going, and Johnny, I'm going to make him laugh a bit more. <laughs> like, it's, he knows how to roll with whatever punch. Yeah, 100%. And then if you, I don't know if you ever got to see it, but his stand-up sort of, not necessarily stand-up, but his sort of show he did with Steve Martin, where I think it was on Netflix, where they, yes, they showed the I have, special. Yeah. And it's so funny. And you can tell these guys just absolutely love each other and it's so much improv where you they're just taking these jabs at each other and it's all in such good fun and spirit and then you know martin short will be out there just you know shooting the shit and cracking wise on Steve Martin, and then he'll go into this crazy dance routine and sing routine and you're like this guy is just full of just gusto and even at his age you know in his 70s he still will do that 
unbridled energy and it's so fucking funny which is also why it's interesting just in terms of like doing an episode of this show about him um despite all that like in terms of his film career specifically it is much more like supporting parts and things or like he'll pop up in certain things there's very few movies where he is even like the main lead like he'll always be buddied up with either steve martin or some other like comedic talent of some sort it's rare that he gets to be like the center stage version i think it's because like he's so full of energy and just weird bursts of bizarreness like it's hard to make him like a leading man necessarily he's just you can't contain martin short enough to be like the lead center of your movie I think that might be part of the problem with one of our movies as we'll get into. Yeah, you could say that. But yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. And it, that's what always has worked and endeared him so much to me and probably a lot of other people is when he'll show up in these sometimes real bit roles or just real side characters. And he's just hilarious. Anytime he's on screen, he makes the scene. Like he's a scene stealing character actor, 100%. Yes. Uh, as uh, we'll talk about in our two movies for today, uh, which we picked at the end of our last episode. Uh, randomly, we have our two movies uh, starring Martin Short. We have first your good pick of Inner Space, and then my bad pick of Clifford. And let's start off with Inner Space. Test pilot Tuck Pendleton wants to make history. Supermarket clerk Jack Putter needs a vacation. Jack, Sir, I'm Jack, sorry. you're late. That's not good. You know it's coupon day. Lieutenant Pendleton is about to be miniaturized, placed into this needle, and then injected into this rabbit. Rock and roll. But something went wrong, and Tuck's about to get a new destination. <laughs> Inside Jack Putter. I'm in a man. Hello, can you hear me? I'm possessed! Now, Jack's got twice the problems. How you doing, Jack? But he's double the man. With Tuck on his side. You're not gonna back groceries all your life, are you, Jack? And only 24 hours left for Jack to get out of danger. Dennis Quaid, Martin Short. Give yourself a shot of adventure. Inner Space. Center Space came out uh, July 1st, 1987 from Joe Dante, our beloved Mr. Joe Dante. Um, and this was uh, his film uh, not too long after uh, he had done both uh, Gremlins and Explorers. Basically, if you're unaware somehow of this movie, um, it is a sci-fi comedy uh, that mainly stars Dennis Quaid uh, as Lieutenant Tuck Pendleton. So he's a washed up kind of Air Force pilot uh, who um, gets a job at this weird experimental uh, company that is uh, experimenting with uh, shrinking technology. So he's going to get inside a little ship and go inside of a rabbit is the initial test. But a lot of chaos ensues uh, after uh, sort of some corporate espionage happens. And uh, the little syringe that has Dennis Quaid inside his little ship um, ends up traveling over to Martin Short's character, Jack Putter, who is this hypochondriac grocery store worker who is trying to like avoid huge amounts of excitement. And he ends up getting injected with a little vial that has Dennis Quaid inside. So Dennis Quaid is now swimming around Martin Short's body as uh, he's trying to, you know, get some way of uh, getting out of there before he's on like a limited amount of time that he can be inside and also Dennis Quay is trying to get back together with his girlfriend played by Meg Ryan um, who's an investigative journalist also trying to find out about the mysterious shadiness of this you know, shrinking experiment that's going on and uh, yeah it's a very fun uh, comedy that uh, Adam I'm guessing you're a fan of given it was your good pick 
brilliant detective work. <laughs> He's closed. <laughs> let, let, let me just ask you one more thing. Uh, no, I, uh, yeah, I absolutely love this movie. I, I think it's it's just so fun. And I mean, you know, this is one of those that I watched so many times as a kid. I, I was just blown away by it. Uh, not even just because of the Martin Short of it all, but the visual effects, the set design, the practical effects. I mean, it, it's and it still holds up. Like when Dennis Quaid is in the body, and you know he's going with the red blood cells and all the fat cells, and it looks great. Like it, this movie is just so well done and so funny, and has such a sense of heart to it. And then plus it being a Joe Dante movie, and you get like you know Dick Miller and Robert Picardo and several of his other regulars showing up. It's just it's so fucking funny and charming. I mean, you got the evil next door neighbor from the Burbs. You got Bruce Dern's wife from the Burbs. I mean, it's just one of those things. Where, oh my God, there he is! Oh, there they are! There they are! There they are! And I've always kind of respected Joe Dante for that, where he's just got this core group of actors that he puts in everything. You know, he's from that school, like Sam Raimi and all that. At its core, though, still, this is just such a smart, funny, little sci-fi comedy. It just really works. And I, like, you know, I'm, I'm sure if you're a longtime listener, you might have gleamed that I'm not necessarily a Dennis Quaid fan. But I think this is probably my favorite Dennis Quaid. I think he's perfectly charming as this washed-up Air Force guy who's really just trying to find his way in life. And, you know, all that. It, it just it, everything works in this movie for me. Uh, almost everything. Uh, I think the villainous plot gets a little lazy, uh, especially with like them shrinking and stuff. I think uh, Vernon Wells is really fun in it. It's, it's snap on, you know. He's, he's got the stupid removable hand. Like what a crazy James Bondy gimmick, but it really works. I, I think it's just a really cute, charming movie. And Martin Short, I mean, yeah, he's manic in it, and he can go nuts in it and everything, but it's still kind of a subdued performance as far as like how crazy he can go. Yeah, this is very early in his career because he had been in like a couple movies before this, like Three Amigos right before, but even mm-hmm. like th- that's still like the biggest role he had possibly had. And this is, you know, he's in a lot of the movie after a certain point, especially given he's playing off of Dennis Quaid, who was apparently on set doing audio and they would like switch off and they would, like when Dennis Quaid is like talking to nothing, he, Martin Short was on set in like a booth and vice versa. But at the same time, he still was playing off like just a, a disembodied voice. But he, I agree, like there, there's a lot more of like a subdued to just establishing who Jack Putter is. It's just like this awkward, meek, like, uh, hypochondriac guy who's just worried, like, oh my god, I'm so stressed out. I keep sweating. I don't know what's going on. He keeps. I love the, the one doctor who's just like, look, your uh, visits have helped, like, build my practice, basically, because you come all the time. He's a, an endearingly kind of, like, meek character who, like, gains a bit of that confidence, but also just gains a friend in Dennis Quaid in a weird way that's, like, really endearing and charming to see and is, like, a bit more subdued for short though at the same time when he gets to be manic he goes full out particularly the drunk scene where him and quaid just kind of like relax for a bit and his version of relaxing is dancing like a fucking maniac it's so fun it's so fun and it's exactly the type of dancing you've seen him do before but it just it works so well because you get this genuine sense of these guys never met and they just have kind of figured out what the situation is at least martin short has that they're bonding like, it's so funny. They got that, you know, the twist in the night away playing, and he's downing Southern Comfort, like, and just, and just dancing like a maniac around Dennis Quaid's apartment. And it's just so cute and fun. 
And especially the fact that, like, even if, like, they were in regular circumstances, these two would never become friends at all. They are such diametral no. opposites as people. <laughs> and I love that they establish it even with Quaid, like, at the beginning, like, how much of, like, he is just, like, so washed up and kind of pathetic, despite the fact that he has so much confidence. And it's Quaid really leaning into basically what feels like a young Jack Nicholson type role. Like, he's doing full Nicholson at certain points, which is, like, the how pronounced the smile is and him talking through his teeth the whole time. It's very much there. Uh, but at the same time, it feels all of his own. And especially, you know, the chemistry between him and Meg Ryan is very obvious because they met on this movie and uh, they ended up marrying not too long after this. So if you kids like Jack Quaid on The Boys, thank Joe Dante in Interspace. And then blame Russell Crowe for breaking up that marriage. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yes, <laughs> a bit there. But look, at least we still got Jack Quaid out of it, and that's a very good gotcha, Even if you're not a big Dennis Quaid guy. Like, you yeah. love the, the spawn of Quaid. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, but but no, even, like, their romance, I genuinely believe in terms of, like, how, uh, like, initially she is basically, like, heaving him around because she's trying to become, like, an actual journalist. Like, this could be such a thankless part, but she feels genuinely invested in, like, look, I want to investigate. I want to find out what the fuck's going on. Like, all this weird shit where, like, the, the scientist got shot after, like, a huge chase and no one's talking about it. I want to investigate what's going on here. She's a genuinely good journalist who also is just like, look, I want to be with you, dude, but you're kind of an asshole and fool of yourself. I can't keep, like, lugging you around and how that relationship weirdly develops with Martin Short being the man in the middle is like it's very charming and weirdly romantic after a certain point and the thing is yes she has great chemistry with Dennis Quaid but she also has good chemistry with Martin Short like the three leads work really well together in this that's the one that you believe that Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan would be a couple obviously they became one but you also believe that Martin Short would sort of be attracted to her and that she would be you know, sort of caring for him, and then that they, through these crazy circumstances, him and Dennis Quaid would become friends, and then they become like a you know a trio of best friends. Like it all really, really works. Like everybody in this, for the most part, is on their game. Like there, there's really not a bad performance in the movie. And like I said again, the miniature work and the visual effects in this, I mean, just sell this movie too. It looks so good. It, it really, really works. And just Martin Short's sort of reactions, you know, getting the, the shot to the back of the eye. And when he starts hearing him in the doctor's office, and he's talking to the other people. Like, it, it, you know, it, it just all is really, really charming. That's the one thing I will constantly say about this movie. It's super charming. Yeah, no, and the special effects we should mention, it won an Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. Very deserved, because uh, it's a lot of, um, like, the miniature stuff. With, like, I love the design of the little ship, where it feels like it's kind of, you know, because Joe Dante loves that 50s-era sci-fi. It feels very similar to, like, the Fantastic Voyage ship to some degree, but with a bit of, a, like, an 80s-era twist on it, and even, like, the way that when he shrinks down, like, the light shows or effects that are going on and the actual look of like him decreasing down to like the itty bitty size works but then obviously the robert picardo martin short sort of like transformation element is not just like one of the best visual effects things but also just one of the most bizarre we're just like hey we're gonna make this like weird sci-fi comedy let's have this here this thing that feels like out of a fucking nightmare but it's like really funny to see i mean just the fact that you know even when he's around you know, the, the main antagonist in the movie, and he just starts changing back and just the different levels of what his face is doing and everything. It, it's nightmare fuel, but in this context, it's super funny. And plus, Robert Picardo, whatever he's doing as his character as the cowboy, I'm 100% on board for it. Whatever that accent is, where it's just like, should I be offended by this? I don't yeah, know what this is. I don't know what it is. 
I, I have no idea his hair, the 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 outfit, the just everything about it. It just it's so funny. It's so ridiculous and works so so well. Especially when he's quoting the one cowboy movie like in his room when he's got like half the shirt on. <laughs> he's yeah. wearing the hair dryer and whatever that is. Whatever that thing is, it's like a boot polisher or something. Yeah, I think yeah, everybody's pretty fun. Even like I agree with you about some of the stuff with like Kevin McCarthy's character who plays the villain. Mm-hmm. Like when he and his assistant become sort of like miniature size. It's not my favorite stuff in the movie. Um, but at the same time, he's always fun. People might know him from like the original uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers and um, he the villain in UHF of course is his greatest performance. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he's still so fun here as this dude who like when Martin Short start, starts getting out of the Robert Picardo face I just love the fact that he's like, oh, good God, stop it. <laughs> like, he just wants it to stop. I was just joking. I was just joking, cowboy. Oh, my God. <laughs> and when he's digging around in the dog food for the chip, just like, get the, get the fuck out of here. And he's trying to get it. <laughs> like, there's that heightened element of it that's obviously clear with the Joe Dante movie. But the difference between, like, that kind of heightenedness and, like, being too, like, manic in an over-the-top way that can be annoying is that all these characters still believe in the scenario that's going on here. They're, they're still invested in a way where it's like, this might be a silly scenario, but we are emotionally invested in what's going on here. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's playing it as serious as they can, you know, to honor sort of the source material. Like, obviously, again, you know, a very silly story, crazy sci-fi elements and all that stuff, but it, it all feels real because of how serious everybody's taking it with uh, obviously respecting the comedy angle of it too, but everyone is fully committed and that's really what makes the film endearing. And, you know, to, to get to the Martin Short of it all too, he's such a good fish out of water character in this where, yeah, he's so, you know, hypochondriac and paranoid and, you know, all these things that he's laying on the floor to cure his, you know, his breathing and all that stuff. But just the fact that like they have him find this sort of inner strength or whatever, but it doesn't come across where in some movies where they do that, it feels like just a cop out or such cheap tactic. And this, it, it makes sense. It works for me. Yeah, particularly like near the end when um, Dennis Quaid is no longer in his body after the kiss happens, and he finds right. it out after he beats that dude to shit down the stairs. He's just like, oh, he's in your body. Oh, that was me? Oh, wow, I can't believe he did that. And then the guy comes back up. He's like, oh, God, no. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Like, he has that big moment, but then he's like still, he can't not be himself. So it's like, oh, God, no. <laughs> he's mm-hmm, 100%. Right, and and even like I love how even in like the non-big sci-fi moments, there still is like a real like believability with like him and some of the other characters. Like I love his relationship with Henry Gibson as the guy who's like the manager at the store, particularly the business. Yes. Like you've got a great future in front of you in retail food marketing, and I just hate to see you throw it away by going psycho. <laughs> Such a good line. I love that guy. Yeah, exactly. And then that horrible recurring dream he has, where. Somehow, even when it happens in reality, the price thing is fucking up and it's his fault. Like, everybody's giving him shit. Like, what did you do? Oh, my God. It's such a believable stress dream. And then when it actually happens in reality, you feel so bad for him. And then Uh at the same time, I I love also another great Joe Dante regular Kathleen Freeman as the woman. It's just like, oh, my God, I didn't know your prices were this big. (laughs) I don't carry that kind of money. I'm not paying for the mass brand. And they're like, well, that price, who would? Like, it's just it's so silly. But even that, though, he gets a bottle of aspirin, he starts chugging them. And I love that, you know, people are reacting like, oh, my God, he'll OD, and it's like aspirin. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's so fucking funny. It's so silly. 
And then even his relationship with his co-worker. Yeah, Wendy Shaw, yes. Mm-hmm. Where she's like, I, I think we can maybe start see. I don't know that I'll be exclusive, but... but right, right. But she's like, she wants excitement in her life, and then she sees him at the club in Dennis Quaid's clothes. She's like, oh my god, I didn't know you lived this double life. I know, in that awful big suit. Yep. Like, it's not even a good-looking and, suit. And also, and meanwhile, her attire, which is like in weird 80s punk garb that's like so elaborate. She looks like one of the holograms. Right, she looks like she's cosplaying as like the lady from Nightmare on Elm Street 3. She's just like, I look bad, but I feel good. <laughs> yeah, a thousand percent. A thousand percent. <laughs> uh, but yeah, what I also love about Short in this, it's like you mentioned, like he has the, the zaniness, but like the, one of my favorite Martin Short sort of like actual acting bits in this movie is near the end when uh, they have the big like wedding scene and like, oh, Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan are married and like they're saying goodbye to him, like, goodbye, old pal, uh, the, keep the car warm for me. And then Meg Ryan comes up and like, hugs him and gives him a kiss on the cheek and it's like this charming moment and you stay on short for a bit and you see that bit of like regret in his eye about like oh that lingering wish to like still kind of be with her at that same time even though he knows that like they're a great couple together that's such a great acting bit from him oh yeah you know the other bit too that really works that's very similar is when tuck first comes back to normal size and he's out and he's hugging Meg Ryan, everybody's cheering, and they're, him and Meg Ryan are kissing, and it shows Martin Short, and he's like, you know, happy, and he's smiling, and just the smile slowly fades off his face, like, he probably doesn't care about me, that I'm here, or whatever, and then once Tuck, re- like, recognizes him, you know, Martin Short goes shake his hand, and he hugs him, it's just such a good moment, Yeah, you're like, oh, hell yeah, they are buddies. And when those things kind of marry, like, the best example of that is after the big dance sequence, where he's still kind of drunk. I don't know what you look like. And he goes over and he sees Dennis Quaid's picture on the way, just like, oh, is this you? Wow. Look great. And then goes over to the mirror, and he bumps his head immediately on the mirror. Just like, oh, how's <laughs> he's this? Too, he's way too close to the mirror and shit, yeah. And Dennis Quaid, oh, God, we're going to need a lot of help. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, but it's just, there's so much, like I said, charm and stuff to this movie, and so much heart, and you really are happy for everybody in the movie when everything works out for them for the most part. Uh, My biggest problem with this movie is the end, where, you know, oh, I gotta go save him, and then he's just driving off, and it ends. Like, I just, I don't think that's necessary. I mean, I guess if it was just that, I would have more of a problem, but I love the fact that right before that, he has the big send-off thing, which is like, Doctor, I'm not going to need that next appointment. Wendy, not a chance. And thank you so much, sir, but I quit. And then he goes off. I, I like that, that that is sort of like exclamation point on that moment of just like, he's not going to be like that meek guy anymore. He has like more self-confidence to help out his friends with like the, you know, this danger that's still afoot that he's trying to resolve here. I, I think it works in with that, like, sort of lead up to it. Yeah, all right. Look, I, I don't know. Maybe you're just upset that we didn't get Inner Space 2 further space. Uh, because, uh, <laughs> Inner Space 2, Electric Boogaloo. Right, because uh, this was surprisingly not that successful a movie. It um, cost $27 million to make, only made about $25 million at the box office, which is a shame because it's such an interesting crowd-pleaser. And it's also a shame because, like, I didn't actually watch this movie as a kid. I watched it maybe about 10 years ago. as like, it was a shameful Joe Dante blind spot I hadn't seen. But even, like, at, you know, when I was an adult and I was still able to, like, watch this for the first time, like, oh, this is still incredibly charming. It, it's definitely a movie that, like, is suitable for, like, most ages, pretty much. Yeah, I think so. Like I said, I watched it as a child and I loved it. And 
it was just because the whole thing is fascinating. Like I said, even as a kid, you know, obviously there's going to be jokes in it and stuff that you don't understand, but just the visuals of it all and just the idea that there's a man in a little basically spaceship kind of thing that shrunk down is inside another man and he can go to his eyes and by his heart, you know, the stomach acid scene and all that, like it's super fun. And it's just, it's like a, basically a fantastic voyage type of idea. And it, it's just so well done and, and perfectly executed. Like this is one that I would watch with my kid now and she's not even seven. And I think she would get enjoyment out of it just from even just the Martin Short dancing scene or the, you know, the, the villains being shrunk or the stuff in when he's inside, you know, the bodies. I, I just think there's so much here for kids, teenagers, adults, everybody to like. It's a real shame it didn't do well, which is honestly is surprising to me because, like I said, this is one that was constant on rotation when I was a kid. Yeah, this feels like one that definitely gained a lot more of a cult appreciation once it was on video and like on cable and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, I want to say it was always on cable and I, I watched it every time it was on. Like, that's the thing. I haven't watched this movie in, I can't tell you how long it's been, tw- 10 to 20 years since I've seen this. And uh, when I put it, watched it for this episode, I mean, I was instantly transported back. Like instantly. I'm like, oh, I knew every beat, where it was going, everything that was happening. And it was really fun to sort of revisit that. Yeah, because it's really is like it's this great like comedy, great sci-fi movie, but also has this like real emotional investment in what's going on, and like really takes advantage of like okay, so we have the idea of somebody shrunk, and let's try and do something that isn't just a Fantastic Voyage ripoff. Let's try and do like a modern take on that and what we can do, and I think that's beautifully exemplified in like one of like the weirdly like really tender, beautiful moments of this movie when he's inside of Meg Ryan's body and finds out that she's pregnant, and sees like his kid in the womb. Is like such a beautiful little moment that like you couldn't do in any other fucking movie, but it's a really sweet like oh that's that's like really endearing and investing and you really feel for the moment that like Quaid realizes like oh my entire life is different now. It's such a beautiful little moment that's within a silly sci-fi concept. Well, I think that's what works about this movie the most, right? There's all these little really sweet beautiful moments that happen in this movie that is in this crazy little weird sci-fi comedy package but it's just full of all these really sweet little moments and i i think that's what makes the movie work and martin short is responsible for a lot of those moments and it really really works this is one of my favorite martin shorts just because of how unlike most other martin short performances it is and he's still really fucking good at it well it sounds like pretty good final thoughts unless you have anything else to add adam fuck dennis quaid except for this movie (laughs) <laughs> well, um, yeah, I um, really do agree. I think it, it's a great little movie that has, like, so many weird sort of things that could just, like, flop so hard in its face. But still, it's, like, it has a real earnestness and charm that keeps it, like, really together, along with, like, great cast, not just Short, but Quaid and Meg Ryan and everybody else. Like, it, and it's that got that Joe Dante sensibility that's clearly inspired by older movies, but also trying to kind of, like, evolve a two and eighties era and see what he can sort of do with like this technology and these concepts in a modern age and does a really great job with all of that and definitely feels like one of the better uses of short for all of his like big over the top comedic moments, but also some of his better like understated moments that I wish he would, you know, maybe display in a few more movies. But Adam, that's not gonna be seen in our next film. No no no. That's not gonna be the case with our bad feature for this episode, Clifford. Clifford is a very special little boy. Would you please stop hitting the back of my chair? I am trying to sleep. 
I'm sorry, Miss Nice Older Person, but I don't know what you're talking about. Perhaps you were just having a nightmare about your early days in the circus. And he's bound for Los Angeles to spend a week with his Uncle Martin. Are we ready to go to Dinosaur World now? I've got some bad news. <laughs> what? What? Martin Short in his smallest role ever. Charles Grodin in his most trying performance. Can you just act like a human boy for one minute here? Look at me like a human boy. Well, there it is, Clifford. Dinosaur World. I really shouldn't put this in hyperdrive, but I just can't seem to help myself. Clifford, terror has a new name, and comedy has a new face. <laughs>So Clifford came out April 1st, 1994, uh, from director Paul Flattery, who had worked with uh, Martin Short on SCTV a lot. Clifford is kind of infamous in terms of uh, Martin Short's career. If you're unaware of this movie, it stars Martin Short as Clifford, the titular character, who is a 10-year-old boy. And Martin Short plays him as a 10-year-old boy and is on his knees a lot. And basically, it's not talked about the fact that he looks like an adult man or anything. He is playing it straight as like, I am a child in the reality of this movie. And there's some wraparound stuff uh, where basically he's like a priest in the future talking to this kid about like, oh, I was a very like naughty little boy. Let me tell you all about it. And they flash back to the 90s where um, Clifford is, you know, what one might call from around that time a problem child, perhaps. Um, you know, a bit of rambunctious uh, kid who causes trouble a lot of the time. But uh, the, the thing is, he causes so much trouble uh, for his parents, uh, Richard Kind playing his father, at the beginning when they're on a plane, and he proceeds to uh, cause the pilot to make an emergency landing in Los Angeles because he wants to go to Dinosaur World, his one goal in life to go to this dinosaur theme park in Los Angeles, that um, he's been banned from the flight, and Richard Kind needs to go for a business conference to Hawaii, so he's like, oh my god, I gotta get my brother, who I don't talk with a lot, played by Charles Grodin, uh, Uncle Martin, to uh, pick him up and keep him for a week, take care of him. And it's a bit of a win-win initially for Charles Grodin, because he's like, oh, you know what? I'm trying to convince my uh, fiance Sarah, played by Mary Steenburgen, that I can be a good father, I can be good, you know, with kids, so I'll bring Clifford along, and then we'll have a lot of fun. And um, based on, you know, that opening with the airplane thing, um, Clifford proceeds to ruin this man's life in very heightened comedic antics. And this was a movie that it was originally shot in like 1990 and didn't get released till 94 because of like Orion's bankruptcy stuff. And was a movie that was reviled when it came out. Everyone fucking hated it. It did not do very well at the box office. Um, it was seen as kind of like the movie that killed sort of Martin Short vehicles. Because after this, he would not play like titular characters anymore. He would be like supporting people. And I totally get it because Clifford... Um, is not a movie that would appeal to mainstream audiences whatsoever. It is a very mean, very kind of twisted, demented idea of like sort of a sketch comedy character movie that would have been very prevalent around this time. But at the same time, I find it incredibly fascinating as a film. All right. So. <clears throat> First, he's not a problem child. He's a sociopath. Like, there's no question. <laughs> right? I mean, like, he's he's insane. He's a monster. He's a horrible, horrible monster. He is the bad seed. He is Damien the Omen. He is from hell itself. 
a thousand percent. He's the Stepford Cuckoos. He's he's whatever the fuck. Like he's a maniac. <laughs> I just flat out. I'm just gonna get my impression out right then and there. It's an awful, awful movie, but it is such a fascinating misfire on so many levels that any time this movie is on, I watch it because it's one of those that that you ask that age old question: How the fuck did this get made? Like, how was this greenlit, given a budget, cast, shot for however many months, and then released, even though it was delayed release? How is this a thing? How is this movie a thing? I don't understand. There's so much wrong in this movie that it's all kind of right. There's no other movie like this. There's plenty of, you know, little problem kids. I mean, to titular problem child films. Dennis the Menace. I mean, it's an age-old idea. I mean, Home Alone even. Like, when this movie was being made, it was kind of like trying to weirdly ape off that success, maybe even parody those movies to a certain extent. 100%. I mean, there, there's a ton of them. In film, comic, new strip, whatever form. The cartoons, it's, it's a thing. It's a very familiar trope. But... It's a 40-year-old man playing this 10-year-old child who is in no way a 10-year-old child. Doesn't look like one, doesn't act, whatever. And they're just like, oh, no, he's no, he's done. There's not like a, you know, a disease or something that makes him look older, nothing like that. No, he's a 10-year-old boy. He's got to believe it. And it's such a wild decision. And yet, him and Charles Grown have so much fucking just animosity. I, I love the two of them together in this movie. Yes. They have so much chemistry compared to anybody else in this movie has zero chemistry with either of them. No, I think that's the thing is that, like, I don't necessarily love this movie in a way like it's got no, being, I like, don't a love cult it. It's appreciation. terrible. Well, I, I wouldn't even say it's quite terrible. I think it has such moments of brilliance when Short and Groden are together. I think that is where this movie fires on so many comedy cylinders, of especially just that dynamic you're talking about. It's almost, it's like classic, great comedy dynamic of just like one character just fucking loathes the other one while the other guy's just like oh no i'm having fun i don't know what you're talking about this is great i'm having a fun time while i'm doing this to you like this is weird like it almost feels like it's a tom and jerry cartoon but with human characters so it's so much more upsetting (laughs) it's anytime daffy duck was around anybody else where daffy duck just had no idea he was being the most obnoxious horrible character and everybody he just thought everybody was on the ride with him that is this movie with Charles well, Grodin and Martin Short. I don't, I, I don't know if that's quite the Looney Tunes comparison I would have, because I would say it's more like whenever Bugs Bunny fucks with somebody who thinks they have like some kind of power over them, like the Leopold guy, the composer or whatever. Oh, God. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Right, because the thing is, like, Charles Grodin at the beginning, like, when he's, like, with Mary Steenburgen, it's clearly, like, a relationship that, like, where he's, like, not a complete asshole, but at the same time is still, like, very much not considerate of, like, all of her feelings necessarily. You can see why they're on the rocks a bit. But, like, at the same time, there's a bit of fun. Like, I love the bit where he's just like, you know, I'm great with my nephew. We should bring him over here. I love my nephew. He's like, you have a nephew? What's his name? I want to say Mason. (laughs) such a funny (laughs) fucking line. (laughs) That, like, she was like, okay, this guy isn't really that considered. He's kind of a dick. But the moment Clifford comes into his life, like, he breaks that man down to where he's just like... instantly. 
but but it's a degrading like to a degree where initially she's like, oh my god, I can't believe this, but maybe I can control the situation. But every single part of his life, his job, his love life, his criminal record, like gets <laughs> completely thrown down the toilet by Clifford coming in, just like wrecking his life to the degree where like he gets angry with Clifford with stuff just like, why can't you be a normal human boy? Why can't you be that? Look, you're doing something weird right now. What the fuck are you doing to me right now? Like he gets over the top. But then I love by the end, like the third act of this movie, he is just like dead inside he's broke you know his mind is he's broken <laughs> like when his project explodes and he's just like i underestimated the evil one <laughs> <laughs> when he puts him he's on like, the ride right he's like no maybe we could slow down uncle bard no i think we'll go faster <laughs> let's see how you enjoy 10 hours on it oh i think i'll enjoy even more 10 hours let's see yeah. Yeah, i shouldn't put this into hyperdrive clifford but let's just see how that goes <laughs> He's completely uh, broken as no, a man. He's lost. Yeah, he's destroyed. And that the, the Leopold sort of reference is perfect. That, that's exactly what it is. It's just him constantly pegging at him until he loses his mind. Yes. You know, the one and two and three and four, she dances all day long. Ah! <laughs> but, um, yeah, just, oh, oh, thanks. I hope you won't be lonely in prison. He's like, oh, Clifford. Like, it just, he's completely gone. Uh, yeah, but like I said, it's the movies, there's so many crazy decisions that make this movie not good. But I, I do agree, their chemistry is like old school, almost Abbott and Costello type, where there's the crazy one and then the more demure one who then becomes insane because of the other one. Like, it's just got that classic trope, and their chemistry is so palpable that that's why everything else around it really falters. Roan and Steenbergen don't really have any chemistry together. It's a pretty thankless role for Steenbergen. Yeah, I mean, it is. It is. But Martin Short has so much chemistry with grown that with anybody else is completely incomparable like it, it's really a bizarre thing i mean i would argue richard kind he has a bit of that with for the five minutes or whatever right but i mean like you can tell that like the kind especially when he's like dressing him down just like when does your madness end yeah. <laughs> it keeps going <laughs> it's like it's, it's like a precursor to what would follow after this point but i mean yeah i think in general there's a lot of just sort of like typical 90s comedy stuff that's like surrounding that relationship that i'm not as huge like the worst stuff to me is the uh the flash forward stuff the bookends which terrible was man which were all shot like in like 94 before the release came out oh that was added right that was added like very late in the game and it shows it really it makes sense. so much sense but at the same time like that those that all just feels clear like okay we have to make this work somehow you can tell the studio when orion was finally able to release this like we cannot release this <laughs> no we gotta do something like, we have to do something to, like because like look oh he ends up performed by the end so that's good he becomes right? a priest Get the fuck out of here, man. Like, it's so ridiculous. What works so well about this movie is that, like, at its best, it feels like it's kind of, like, a weird parody of, like, either those Problem Child, Home Alone-style movies, or even, it feels like it's a weirder, like, much more cynical version of, like, those SNL comedies, like, character comedies. I agree. It's like, oh, we're going to build a whole movie around one of these characters that this, like, great comedic talent plays, but... I think the the difference that like makes me prefer Clifford at least a bit more than like a lot of those very bad sort of SNL character comedies is in those movies they try and make you like side with that guy with the main character. It's like, oh, but he has a heart or a girlfriend or whatever, isn't that great? And Clifford, aside from really those like uh, sort of wraparound segments, Clifford is always treated as like a fucking monster. <laughs> it's like an evil child <laughs> that probably needs to die. <laughs> 
there's no probably about it. <laughs> like, <laughs> that, that that bit at the end where like he's about to like fall off and dinosaur would like help me, Uncle Morton, and Charles Gordon's like, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> it's like so true. It's just like I don't know. I don't even need to think, man. Like make the world a better place. Get this monster yeah. out of here. You know what actually I know it sounds crazy, but what would have been a real dark way to go about it, but it would have been really funny for the bookends. Instead of him being a priest, have it be one of those like scared straight things. No, where Clifford's in prison. prison. Yeah, like, <laughs> talking to little kids. But I used to do crime. You know, that type of stuff. Like, that would be funny. Uh, right. It's just, this is such a bizarre fucking movie. Like, the, the, the I guess the biggest question I always have with this movie is uh, who is it for? It's not for kids. It's not for adults because it's so perplexing. Like, this is a movie for no one. I mean, that's why, hence, I get why it was not very successful and kind of hated at the time in particular. Uh, Because I think, like, from what I understand, I read a bit of a... Vulture did, like, an oral history of this movie. Oh, shit, really? Yeah. Gotta send Um, that link out. Which I do love. I will probably link it up. I love, by the way, it starts off with the writer saying, just like, um, I, di- I did an oral history of Clifford, mostly because no one said I couldn't do it. <laughs> um, where they interviewed, like, Short and the writers and stuff, and apparently it was originally designed to be a much darker movie. Like, Stephen Katman, one of the writers, was going to direct it, and it was going to be much more of, like, a comedic play on, like, The Bad Seed. Which is like an old fifties uh, movie that's about like an evil child basically that is born into the world and brings destruction. But then the studios were a bit more like, well, and Marty himself wanted to make it a bit more of like, oh, it's like emphasize more on the comedy, maybe make it a a bit more of like a mainstream thing. So you have this weird middle ground movie that I agree doesn't really appeal to mass audiences, and this is not a movie I would necessarily recommend to people. But man, at the same time, like I mentioned, there are like such nuggets of brilliance when, when we get to like uh the the dinosaur world stuff later on and we have like them going on this like big elaborate which for the record like most of the budget is dinosaur world and oh, it's yeah. elaborate and bizarre and it feels like it's this weird like tim burton set piece at the end of this fucking movie <laughs> like the way that short is so giddy about dinosaur world and even earlier on like the stuff with stefan i love that whole gag with stefan it's just like it wasn't me stefan did his little toy dinosaur <laughs> he keeps blaming for things like this is all like villainous monstrous awful behavior for this 10 year old boy but the worst version of this movie would not have martin short it's like it would have an actual kid having martin short do it it adds this other layer of like creepiness but also kind of this ludicrous charm that he's like just going off and doing these things like the bit where um he tricks charles Grodin into going to san francisco and he's in the middle of the train station saying san francisco open your golden gates and he's like doing the martin short dancing thing <laughs> it's <laughs> insanity but it's like it's captivating to watch every time he does it i mean yeah that that's the thing like like I said, every time this comes on, I watch it, and knowing going into it that it's it's terrible, you can't take your eyes off the screen, especially when Martin Short is on screen. Like, what is what the decisions being made here are so bizarre, and yet, like, you're just kind of there for it. Like, I'm into it. I, I, I it sounds insane, but this movie, it, it's I can't I, I can't recommend this movie to anybody. And yet, I kind of think everybody should see it, because you're going to be confused. And it works for, for that. Like, it, this is you know, one of those good, bad movies, and it totally fits that bill. Because of 
how perplexing it is and how just insane and manic it is and just the decisions being made here and knowing that there was money behind this and that people really put effort into this crazy fucking thing that shouldn't exist. I think like the best movie we can equate to that we've covered on the show previously is like a nothing but trouble. Yes. In terms of like, it is like the unfiltered version of this great comedic mind uh, just going full board with like, this is my movie to like be my star vehicle of sorts. And I would argue at least compared to like a nothing but trouble, which I find disgusting um, for <laughs> a lot of reasons. I don't find Clifford disgusting because at the same time that I agree that like there's all the bad stuff is like mainly very bad comics. Like we haven't even mentioned Dabney Coleman one of the great sort of like straight men in comedy um, has a very thankless role as like the boss um, who is like some weird threat to like maybe pick up Mary Steenburgen or whatever. Um, like you have that stuff that just feels like, Oh, this is like perfunctory and Pat just to like kind of get this out to 90 minutes. But then you got shit like fucking Charles Grodin drinking the Tabasco thing at the fucking dinner party and trying to deliver that speech in just like a, a hush kind of whisper tone. And then Martin Short like reacting, even like when he gets arrested and Martin Short like in the background is covered, just like, oh no, oh Uncle Martin, he's an innocent man. Stop it. And then he does that weird face, that weird fucking face he makes. Like he's like just going to a fugue state. <laughs> That's why you know shit's about to go down. It's so absurd, and it's, it's like you said, like, this is a movie that could never exist in any no. other time or place. It shouldn't even exist in the time and place it came out. That's the thing. This movie shouldn't exist, period. Mm -hmm. It's so bizarre. All the decisions made here are, are lunacy. Yes, and do you feel like, you know, it rightly kind of ended Short's career as, like, kind of, like, potentially having more star vehicles? Like, in some mad world where Clifford became a box office success, could you see him potentially doing more of these kind of movies? Like, is there any world where that could potentially exist for you, or would you want to see more of that kind of thing from him? Honestly, no. No. I think Martin Short is perfect as the sort of side character, side comedic force, or just the art showman who does his review shows and stuff like that. Martin Short feels like a Jerry Lewis type, which, I mean, yeah, obviously Jerry Lewis had a very huge successful career. I'd argue the, not any of it was very good. I'm just not a Jerry Lewis fan, surprisingly. I don't see Martin Short as a lead star. I never have. And I can completely understand why this movie might have prevented that going forward. I love Martin Short as sort of the spice. Right, as opposed to when you have a movie that is all spice, uh, you get kind of like, you know, like uh, fucking Charles Grodin with like your your tongue becomes dry and you can't keep going. You can't finish the meal. It's all spice. I can't. The spice can't flow anymore. Right. Yeah. Well, the spice must flow. Yes. But we should flow on to the next part of the show. So final thoughts, Adam, on Clifford. It's fucking crazy. Like, this movie's crazy. It doesn't make any sense. I don't know why. I, I still am very confused about sort of the genesis of this project and how it became to be and what the final sort of project we are left with is. Like, it, it's insane. But it is so insane. You gotta see it. It's one of those you gotta see it to believe it. Is it one that, you know, is gonna be one of your favorites in rotation. I'd be very surprised if anybody would keep this in constant rotation, but it's definitely one of those. You got to see it. Yeah. There's never a dull moment with Clifford. 
That's for sure. Cl- Clifford, like, throughout, it's, like, it's barely even 90 minutes long. Like, it's stretching out to be, like, a feature-length film. It's never boring. It's constantly fascinating for either genuinely, I would argue, like, really good comedic stuff between Grodin and Short, or just the weird, bizarre turns of, like, why would you do this for a movie? It just feels so insane. And, you know, some of it doesn't, you know, obviously, like, age well, given it's a 90s comedy. Some weird transphobic jokes that are very random in this movie that aren't great. Uh, but still, at the same time, there's, like, such fascination with, like I said, Grodin and Short work so well together because you believe the beleaguerdness that Grodin is feeling. Like, we, are, we haven't talked about a Grodin movie since he passed away. Rest in peace, one of the great comedic talents out there. And in this movie, you can tell because like, he believes so much in how much he loathes this child and because he is ruining him. And uh, at the same time, Martin Short also believes in the reality. Just like, nope, I'm a 10-year-old boy. A weird fucking ventriloquist puppet made sentient fucking 10-year-old boy standing in front of Charles Grodin just really wanting to go to Dinosaur World. And he's not letting me go to Dinosaur World? Great, his life will be over. I will make sure it is ruined until I can go to Dinosaur World. And the, the slope that goes down is fascinating in a way where, like, I would say if you're a fan of Martin Short, you can't not watch this movie. It is such a crucial Martin Short text that you have to see it. But also, like Adam mentioned, you could watch this movie and clearly tell, like, okay, I see why he's the spice. You can't sustain this for feature length. It will just explode, like, the fucking roller coaster at Dinosaur World at the end. Uh, but it's so fascinating and I think has some genuinely great comedic moments in there that I can't be completely brushed off. But now, Adam, it's time for a weekly segment, The Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. So the Double Redo every week is a segment where Adam and I uh, sort of bring up an alternative double feature where uh, we recommend one good movie and dissuade you from one bad movie each related to the topic, in this case, Mr. Martin Short. Uh, and uh, I'll go ahead and start off with my choices. And uh, for my good, I had a, what was your alternate choice uh, for a good pick? I have Three Amigos, which was his first sort of big movie that he did right before Inner Space uh, that stars him, Steve Martin, and Chevy Chase as a trio of silent film actors in the 1920s uh, who were kind of at wit's end and have been kicked out by the studio because of their narcissism. They are summoned by uh, the small Mexican village who is being terrorized by El Guapo, who's this evil bandit who keeps coming in and destroying their village and taking their uh, livelihoods away. And uh, the Mexican village is under the assumption that they are real heroes, uh, and at the same time, the three amigos themselves are under the assumption that, oh, this is a show that we're being hired to do. And, uh, you know, it's it's a movie that has had uh, was also not very successful at the time it came out, but it's had a lot of, uh, you know, sort of cult appraisal, was a very big, like, uh, cable staple. Uh, it was probably the first movie I saw Martin Short in. And at the same time, there's obviously some very unfortunate implications to it. Like, it's directed by John Landis, uh, who, interestingly, during production of this movie, was on trial for stuff related to the Twilight Zone movie. If you don't know what that is, uh, you go research it yourself. I'm not going to bring down the show by talking about it. No. No. But suffice to say, not a good dude. Did some horrible things. And uh, I I get sort of like that aversion to some of Lance's stuff. And admittingly, you know, 
uh, even just production stuff otherwise has shown that like oh apparently he was like very difficult and an asshole of a director to work with but at the same time i will say there are a handful of those movies like in that 80s era where maybe in spite of landis's own issues uh they were able to you know make these like great comedies like chase and short and Martin have such a great chemistry together. It's the first time Steve Martin and Martin Short work together, and you can tell, like, that immediate chemistry works so perfectly. Even, you know, Chevy Chase, another asshole, like, still, it's probably one of his better performances in any of these movies, and there's such a weird trio that works really well together, but all the other side people, um, like Alfonso Aro, who plays El Guapo, is really funny, um, has small appearances from, like, Joe Mantegna and John Lovitz and Phil Hartman, who are, play the guys at the studio, who are very funny. It's a very charming movie that... You know, some of those 80s movies don't hold up as well, necessarily. And this one largely is quite fun, especially short at, like, such a young, sort of, like, palpable age has so much of, like, this great comedic, like, energy coming off him. Even, like, very subtle stuff. Like, I love the scene where, like, he's it's at night and they're all talking with various different villagers. And he talks about um, his past, which is like, uh, Lillian Gish's sister, Dorothy Gish, saw me on set and said, Kid, you've got it. And he's talking to, like, this group of, like, Mexican kids who have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> It's so funny. Uh, but, you know, like, the musical sequences, like, I love, uh, like, the Blue Shadows bit where they're singing together. It's it's a very charming movie that still holds up pretty well. I rewatched it right before the show. Still pretty fun. Uh, but then my bad is, I would argue, like, you know, with Martin Short, he's such a consistent entertainer that he's rarely been, like, bad in a movie necessarily. But I ha- will submit to you what I would say is probably the only time I have found him completely unfunny in every single regard, in a movie that's also pretty bad, the third in a series of films that, you know, are nostalgic to a lot of kids around my age, but I don't know if they've held up as well. At least the first two movies are much better than The Santa Claus 3, The Escape Clause, which, you know, this is the, the third film starring Tim Allen as Santa Claus, and in this entry, he has to face off against Martin Short as Jack Frost, who is this villain that tries to take over the, the Santa Reigns, and the, the first two Santa Claus movies aren't great movies, but they at least feel a bit more consistent with, like, some of the whimsy and some of the charm. There's, there's like, something there with those other two movies, versus three is bottom of the barrel, just, like, really bad live-action Disney stuff that just doesn't work whatsoever. It, it, like, even especially for Short, who's just given, like, oh, you're a cold guy. That's basically what you are. (laughs) And, like, he can't really work with this material that well, and it's so upsetting to see him, like, floundering. Even, like, a guy as creative and funny as him can't score a laugh out of this. In this movie that is so, like, shoestring that it introduces, like, the sort of, um, It's a Wonderful Life, like, you know, what if Tim Allen never became Santa Claus story? Like, 15 minutes before the movie's fucking ends. Like, it's the main conceit of this movie, and it happens so late in the fucking game, and barely, like, encompasses any part of the plot. Because there's all this bullshit with, like, the in-laws, and, like, Anne-Margaret and Alan Arkin are in it, and it's just, like, it's this complete dead zone of any kind of whimsy, charm, or even comedy for Martin Short, to the point where, in prep for this show, I watched one of those, like, you know, a guy goes through his iconic roles videos that he did, and he went through a bunch of his movies and had so much, like, backstory and stuff to say about his various different things, and when it came to, for some reason, the Santa Claus 3, he was just talking about, like, oh, yeah, I mean, Jack Frost, he was a bad guy. He wanted to, uh, you know, become Santa Claus. And then he moved on to the next thing. <laughs> Like, he has nothing to say. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a pretty bad one. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Three Amigos, obviously, was my alternate choice. Uh, Three Amigos is one of my favorite comedies of all time. I, I There's so many bits of that movie 
that are so funny that, I mean, even every time I watch it, I'll pick up on them. Like when I was a kid, didn't get the joke, got older, realized how preposterous it is. They, they all chipped in and bought him a sweater. <laughs> yes. When <laughs> <laughs> they live in the desert, he's a sweater. You're like, oh, he hates it. And just the whole, you know, do you know what a plethora is? A plethora of pinatas? Yeah, how could you say I have a plethora of something when you don't even know what the word is? You know, it's so fucking good. It, it, but yeah, Martin Short with the, you know, the male plane bit and the, you know, he was in Little Nettie Goes to War and, you know, the the end when they all kiss their women goodbye and his is just this beautiful, like, goddess. And you're like, when did this happen? <laughs> like, right, like he, but I love that he's the only one that has, like, any woman come up and Chevy Chase and Steve Moore like, when the fuck did this happen? Yeah, right, like, what what is, <laughs> wait a minute, what is going on here? <laughs> Just this whole beautiful one with a rose forehead. With <laughs> 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 a dead Beetlelander. Very, very fucking funny. Um, and then Santa Claus 3, it's atrocious. It's, it's so bad. It's almost... It is, to me, unwatchable bad. I don't think I've ever sat through the whole thing. Um, because Santa Claus 3 does that thing, which is my least favorite trope in movies. And you can tell they know they're doing it. When a movie is so bad that they have a constant score going just to push the movie along. Yep. The score in Santa Claus 3, the music does not stop from start to finish. There's music going. Nail-bitingly, teeth-gratingly bad. It's a terrible terrible film perfect choice okay and so now i'll go uh for my good i have father of the bride which obviously you know steve martin martin short again martin short has a very small not necessarily small but he's the wedding planner and uh he's fucking so funny in it it's just this weird character with this weird accent you have no idea where he's from his name's frank and he's just so fucking funny, and he has so much moments of levity, and just he's such a like a sweet doofus who's it's just it works so so well. The sequel, they you know of course because something works in the first, they boost it up so much more, and I'd argue that it becomes less of a character in the sequel uh, with more to do. I think it works in just the limited capacity it is in the first one, and I overall I think that's a very kind of sweet movie. And then briefly to go on my second one, it's a movie that I actually kind of like, but I know a lot of people don't. Uh, I have the Kevin Bacon big picture movie. I get why people don't like it. I totally do. But I don't think any of that is Martin Short's fault is Neil. I think Neil is absolutely hilarious in that movie. The way he eats his cherries, the way his he does the eyes thing, like almost like he does in Clifford. Uh, just the, the his line delivery, like, look, Nick, I'm not going to dick you around. If anybody messes with you, I will grab them by the balls and squeeze till they're dead. Like, it's just, it, he's so fucking funny in it. It's, it's just a weird little movie. I personally like it for what it is, but I get why it's not liked. Um, yeah, I, I have seen uh, both of your films. Um, admittedly with Father of the Bride, it's a weird thing where I think just because of like the way TV syndication rights work, I have seen Father of the Bride 2 far more times than the first one. Oh, me too. Yeah, me too. Because that that one was like incessantly on television. Um, I still think like both are like fun for what they are, uh, but I would agree that I think the first one is a bit more charming. Um, it's, it definitely has like that kind of sweetness about like, oh, you know, we're trying to get this wedding together, but everything's going wrong, and of course part of that being uh, Martin Short, and I believe, isn't B.D. Wong his assistant? Yes. 
Yes, and they're, they're, like, charming together, of course, just popping in and, like, being these weird, like, vaguely Eastern European or whatever characters that, at the same time, is, like, it's very endearing to watch, especially playing off of Steve Martin, of course, always works with short. Uh, a lot of fun there. And then I did see the big picture sort of in prep for this show, um, and it was fascinating because you didn't mention it's a Christopher Guest-directed film. Uh, his first one he actually directed, and it's not really improvised as much, because it's, it's mainly centered around, like, Kevin Bacon is this, like, up-and-coming director who just, like, won, like, a big film student award, so people are, like, interested in him, and I wouldn't say necessarily it's a very bad movie, it's just, like, it, it definitely feels like it's a, it's a movie that has, like, a basic conceit of, like, oh, young guy trying to, be, like, rise up in the film business, and it just kind of runs out of steam after a certain point. Uh, but I agree that none of that is on Short, who weirdly is only in about four scenes and is uncredited in the movie. Um, but at the same time, like, the comedic stuff perks up the moment he shows up, particularly there's a bit where Kevin Bacon's really, like, getting a lot of attention, and he's out, like, with his girlfriend um, on vacation, and Martin Short keeps getting calls from people, just like, oh, he's got a lot of calls, he's very busy, got so much heat right now, and oh, what do you think? You, you think you know better than me? Well, guess what? Fuck you! And then he, like, hangs up the phone, and he's, like, knitting... While he's yeah, doing all of yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, Enrique. Could you send that man over there a raspberry tort? <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. That's another great. And he's wearing this weird red wig that looks like he just has a or- little orphan Annie wig that he brought from his fucking wardrobe. Oh, it's so bizarre. What a weird choice. Like I said, when he's listening to that horrible Copacabana music, it almost gets into the car wreck and he's eating cherries while he's yes. driving. And he's just that look of just pain on his face. Like, what is happening with Martin Short in that movie? It's so funny. Yeah, for sure. He's very funny in a movie that's that's kind of hit or miss. But none of those misses are him. Uh, but let's go ahead and just repeat our titles for everybody out there, as we are want to do. Uh, so my good pick was Three Amigos, and my bad was the Santa Claus 3 colon The Escape Clause. Oh, yeah, I gotta include that. Uh, my good choice was Father of the Bride, and my bad choice was The Big Picture. Yes, and uh, make sure to submit your own choices to us um, in the various socials and stuff as we'll uh, talk about as we wrap up the show, though. Stay tuned for our uh, picking for next week's episode uh, at the end of this one. Uh, though first we want to thank some people like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thorlali for the artwork for our show. Uh, follow him at Night of Water, that's night with a K, underscore of, underscore water. Uh, on Twitter and stuff, you'll find a link tree where you can see all his other great artworks out there. And uh, thanks, of course, to our supporters on Patreon, patreon.com slash dedbpod, where for just $1 a month, you get to uh, you know vote in polls for movies and topics that we cover and listen to bonus podcasts. Like we should say, uh, this month we would have put out uh, one, an On the Edge of Relevance for Prey, the recent Predator movie, and also uh, by the end of the month we'll be having a media discussion where we'll be talking about the uh, recording of the 25th anniversary of Phantom of the Opera, a musical that, let me check my notes here, Adam likes! <laughs> no, dog, I love... <gasps> my notes were inaccurate! Let me just ask you one more thing. <laughs> my keen detective skills. Shot! Uh, but... Uh, yeah, if you just support us for the $1, you get to listen to, you know, those bonus podcasts and vote and all that stuff, and it really helps out the show, keeps us, you know, going out there. For more of us, uh, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod, and you can also submit feedback to us, double-edged-double-bill at gmail.com, all spelled out. 
For more of my stuff, find me on Twitter and Letterboxes at NotTheWho'sTommy. And I also do some writing at both MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and at Film-Cred.com. And just a couple of little shout-out promotional stuff. Uh, later this week, you'll be able to hear me on another Talk Film Society podcast, the uh, Kevin Smith podcast, I Assure You You Were Podcasting, uh, where I will be talking with the host, Mike, about Zack and Mary Make a Porno which I feel is sort of an underrated gem in the later Kevin Smith career. And then uh, I also will be at Dragon Con, doing panels as I am wont to do in downtown Atlanta. Uh, This will be uh, the Labor Day weekend, so uh, between uh, Thursday, September 1st, and uh, Monday the 5th, uh, you can see me doing several different panels. If you are on the Dragon Con app, you'll be able to search for me, and uh, add those uh, particular panels to your schedule. Uh, And those panels include uh, topics like Godzilla, Severance, Candyman, The Thing, What We Do in the Shadows, David Lynch, and Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Uh, so you'll be able to see you know, the schedule. I'll probably post them on my socials as well. Uh, we'll be able to see uh, you know, the locations and everything uh, for me over at Dragon Con in downtown Atlanta. And I'll be in Michigan doing nothing. <laughs> Don't come over there. Don't come here. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but you can find me on Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. You can also find me on Facebook under my name, Adam Thomas. Uh, it's, it's private, so send me a message. And uh, let me know you listen to the show. And, yeah, we can link up and shoot the shit, whatever you want to do. Uh, well, maybe not whatever. Uh, you got to go to my only fans for that. Uh, and then I'm also on Letterboxd at Schwanson. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. And OnlyFans at Lightsaber6969. Yeah, you don't want Clifford's Facebook messaging. You're just like, you're the bestest podcaster out there. Yeah, right. Well, and for more of us, uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, why listen to all the other great shows on the network? And uh, you can also dig into our Podbean main feed for like 200 episodes before we join Talk Film Society. And nothing else. (laughs) Yep, a lot of them. And, you know, if you can't support us through the Patreon, that's cool. Money can be tight. But the completely free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around because that gets us more visibility. Yeah. So fucking pull up your pampers and do it, you bunch of babies. Well, now, Adam, (laughs) it's time we did our... (laughs) Hey, I like speed right past that. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go buy it, go buy it. (laughs) Yes, uh, we now have to do our picking for next week's episode, Adam. And, uh, you know, this is a topic that was actually chosen by our patrons over at patreon.com slash dedbpod because uh, they picked the topic for next week, which we wanted to do another fantasy subgenre. And we ended up uh, circling, thanks to our patrons, to urban fantasy, which basically, if you're unaware of the specific subgenre, it's like if you have a fantastical element that appears into, like, the real world kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right, that's the vague yeah. parameters in which we are going to have this particular episode, uh, which uh, you have the two bad choices, I have the two good, and we've each assigned those number between 1 and 10, as we are wont to do, and we will pick a number between 1 and 10 for each of our uh, two choices, and whichever that gets closest to, like, I'll say, oh, for Adam's bad choices, I pick number 2, he'll say, okay, that's closest to number 3, which is this blank choice. Uh, and that gets us our good and our bad feature. But keep in mind, we do have the Godfather rule, where Adam and I have a single veto in our back pocket. We have to use it or lose it by next May. So if we hear, like, oh, number 
3 is this particular movie, and we're like, you know what? I don't want to cover that movie. We can simply say the magic words of, actually, I'll take the cannoli, unless that gets us, you know, the other choice that's available uh, as our particular good or bad choice for that. But, Adam, for my two good choices, please pick a number between 1 and 10. Over at number nine, I have um, an animated film uh, from an esteemed uh, filmmaker in Japan. We've covered anime before, but we haven't uh, covered this particular director's work, which is a shame because he makes masterful films. Uh, I have uh, Hayao Miyazaki's, uh, I think a bit underrated film, Ponyo. Oh, wow. God, I haven't seen that in forever. That's a great fucking movie. Wow. Yeah. Interesting choice. Uh... I will not be taking the cannoli. Good, sir. Yeah. Get to cover some Ghibli, finally. Yeah, Great. fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. Great stuff. Oh, fuck <laughs> But over at number two, I have another one uh, that is, it's a live action film, but it's one from a great sort of uh, comedic talent who also directed and wrote this film. Um, I have Albert Brooks's Defending Your Life. Oh, boy. Uh, I know I've seen that. It's been forever. I like Albert Brooks, so that would have been a pretty interesting choice, too. All right. All right. All right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. But for your two bad choices, Adam, <laughs> I'm going to go with number six. All right. So at number five, you're going to have to bear with me here, Thomas. I, I, I'm stretching it a little bit, but I think it applies. Okay. okay. Uh, it's a movie starring Michael Rooker. It was great. Mm-hmm. Promising. And also Casper Van Dien. Also promising, of course. Keep going. Sure, of course. Always. It is one of my favorite bad movies. Uh, it's one we've watched together before. It is the classic horror movie, The Skeleton Man. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, that's that's definitely stretching <laughs> Yeah, but I don't give uh, a fuck, baby. <laughs> but I mean, I I guess the titular skeleton man has a lot of like weird fantastical vibes off of him. But what was your alternate choice, Adam? Uh, one of the just most perplexing sequels I've ever seen, where it totally undoes everything the first one did, pretty much instantly. I have Highlander two. Oh, the quickening. Yeah. What yeah, the I mean, fuck we, is that movie? <laughs> we've covered the original on the show, and I have never seen Highlander 2. So, I mean, <laughs> either way, I would have been fascinated. Uh, but, you know, Skeleton Man and Ponyo. <laughs> this is one of those, man. If I were to pitch somebody that's just like, oh, hey, what are you doing on your next episode? It's like, oh, so we're doing Urban Fantasy. We're doing Ponyo, the Hayao Miyazaki <laughs> movie, and the Sci-Fi Channel original movie Skeleton Man. It's just like, well, no other podcast is doing that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> At least it did it. Picture a world where Ponyo meets Casper Van Dien. <laughs> oh, you mean my dream world, of course. Oh, hell yeah. Well, on that note, um, I think it's time that we skedaddled out of this episode. Uh, but until next time, everybody, make sure to take your children to Dinosaur World or reap the consequences.